You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 412 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, at the end of the last episode, the Confederates were fiercely assaulting Horseshoe Ridge on the afternoon of September 20th, 1863, the third day of the Battle of Chickamauga. In the face of those rebel attacks, the Federals defending the high ground were hanging on with grim desperation, but their situation was steadily deteriorating. Meanwhile, six miles away, Union Major General Gordon Granger had been making the decision of his life as a soldier. Stationed north of the battlefield at Rossville Gap with orders to hold that point, he had fretted through the sounds of battle the day before. Then, when Sunday the 20th brought even more intense thunders from the south and mounting clouds of powder smoke drifting into the sky, Granger faced his moment of truth as an army officer. Should he obey orders and stay out of the fight? Or should he reckon that Rosecrans needed him but had somehow failed to get word to him? Taking the bull by the horns and risking a court-martial, Granger decided to march to the sound of the guns. Leaving a single brigade to guard the gap, he took the two brigades of Brigadier General James Steedman's division and marched off toward the battlefield. Few of Granger's men had seen combat before, but as they reached the northern fringes of the battlefield, none of them could mistake the signs all around them. One of them later wrote, quote, The whole country was on fire. Fences, woods, haystacks, houses? The sulfurous odor of burned powder told them more than wood smoke composed the gray haze that lay across the landscape, and mingling with it was the stench of death. Soon they had no need to search for its source, because as they reached the scene of Breckenridge's morning advance, they saw the McDonald cornfield spread out before them, strewn with bodies. Into it. They were in range of Confederates on the far northern end of Polk's wing now, and they began taking incoming fire. Double quick came the command, and up and down the long column, the men leaned forward and trotted across the grisly field, stealing themselves for what they all knew lay ahead. 
From his headquarters on the northern slope of Snodgrass Hill, George Thomas could see a large column of troops double-quicking toward him across the McDonald field. He and other nearby officers studied them, but their identity was obscured by the dust cloud they raised. However, what was clear was that this was a large number of infantry, and they were approaching the rear of Thomas's position. If they were Confederate, then the battle was all over but the shouting. Tense moments passed. Thomas raised his field glasses, or what we today call binoculars, and tried to make out the flags waving above the jogging column, but his horse wouldn't stand still. To the nearby staff officers, he barked, Take my glass, some of you whose horse stands steady. Tell me what you can see. One of them did so and said he thought he saw the stars and stripes, but the dust was thick and no one on the hill could be certain of the identity of the mystery troops. Finally, Thomas sent a staff officer galloping down the slope and across the field. Unable to find my brigade, I reported to General Thomas, who directed me to remain with him. He had assumed command of all the forces still intact and was pretty closely beset. The battle was fierce and continuous, the enemy extending his lines farther and farther around our right toward our line of retreat. We could not meet the extension other than by refusing our right flank and letting him enclose us which, but for gallant Gordon Granger, he would inevitably have done. Looking across the fields in our rear, I had the happy distinction of a discoverer. What I saw was the shimmer of sunlight on metal. Lines of troops were coming in behind us. The distance was too great, the atmosphere too hazy to distinguish the color of their uniform, even with the glass. Reporting my momentous find, I was directed by the general to go and see who they were. Galloping toward them until near enough to see that they were our troops, I hastened back with the glad tidings and was sent again to guide them to the general's position. It was General Granger, with two strong brigades of the reserve, moving soldier-like toward the sound of heavy firing. Meeting him and his staff, I directed them to Thomas, and, unable to think anything better to do, decided to go visiting. I knew I had a brother in that gang, an officer in an Ohio battery. I soon found him near the head of the column, and as we moved forward, we had a comfortable chat amongst such of the enemy's bullets as had been fired too high. The incident was a trifle, marred by one of them unhorsing another officer of the battery, whom we propped against a tree and left. A few moments later, Granger's force was put in on the right, and the fighting was terrific. Lieutenant Ambrose Bierce, Staff, Brigadier General William Hazen, Army of the Cumberland. While Granger's panting soldiers threw themselves to the ground and caught their breath on the back slope of the hill, George Thomas conferred quickly with Granger and Steedman. He was delighted to learn that the wagons bouncing across the McDonald field behind Steedman's infantrymen 
contained 95,000 rounds of badly needed ammunition. Thomas reckoned that was enough to issue about 10 rounds per man to the hard-pressed federal troops holding Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge. Though Thomas would have liked to use Steedman's men to plug the worrisome gap between Snodgrass Hill and Kelly Field, the growing crisis on the right, out on Horseshoe Ridge, where the 21st Ohio was fighting for the Army's life, compelled George Thomas to commit the newly arrived reinforcements there. Quickly, Steedman's men were gotten to their feet and sent off again at the double quick this time jogging by the right flank through the trees at the northern base of Horseshoe Ridge. The 1st Brigade came into position, halted, and faced to the front again, up the steep wooded ridge. The other brigade continued double-timing past them until it came into line on their right. Ahead of them, the men of the brigade could see a thin line of blue-uniformed men fighting at close range and even hand-to-hand, as the 21st Ohio struggled to hold back the attacking rebels. On the right, Steedman's men could see only Confederates atop the ridge. Then the order came, and Steedman's men plunged up the slope. The Buckeyes of the 21st had reached the last desperate extremity when a loud cheer rose from the backside of the ridge, and a solid blue-coated line of battle surged over the crest, through and around the thin line of exhausted Ohioans, and straight into the astonished Confederates. But if the rebels were supposed to yield their hard-won gains just because Union reinforcements had appeared on the scene, no one had given them a copy of the script. One of Steedman's brigade commanders admitted the Confederates, quote, fought like tigers and with the zeal and energy worthy of a better cause. The Confederates were still determined to drive the Federals off the high ground. A bloody fight ensued at close quarters and raged back and forth over the ridge. Participants' estimates put this phase of the fight at anywhere from 25 minutes to an hour, but it ended with the rebels receding once more down the body-strewn slope they had come up. A half-hour lull settled over the blood-drenched ground. Nearly half of Steedman's men were down. Those still on their feet mopped their powder-streaked faces and peered anxiously into half-empty cartridge boxes. It was still only mid-afternoon, and they knew the rebels would be back. And back the Confederates came, again and again throughout the long afternoon, pausing only to regroup, and then pressing up the slope once more. Several times they came near to breaking through, but each time the Federals managed to throw them back. The battered 21st Ohio fought on, now with Steedman's troops on their right and Vanderveer's men from Brannan's division on their left. The soldiers of Harker's brigade, along with the fragments of half a dozen other commands, hung on to the open crest of Snodgrass Hill, with Charles Harker exercising strict fire control and rationing his volleys, since no one in blue had any ammunition to waste this afternoon. That afternoon, for the Confederates, victory seemed within their grasp, but somehow still unattainable. 
James Longstreet had been in high spirits after his wing's initial success. To one of his brigadiers, Old Pete had exclaimed, Drive them, General! These Western men can't stand it any better than the Yankees we left in Virginia. Drive them! For the moment at least, Longstreet seemed to have forgotten what had happened the last time he had tried to drive the Eastern Yankees outside a Pennsylvania town called Gettysburg. In any case, here at Chickamauga, by mid-afternoon, he had discovered that the Western Federals were no easier to drive than their Eastern counterparts. That afternoon, reporting his wing's accomplishments to Braxton Bragg and seeking support from Leonidas Polk's wing, Old Pete also found that the Confederate Army commander had a different view of the day's events. Bragg, to Longstreet, seemed almost to consider the battle lost, and the general from Virginia found this inexplicable. If Bragg was indeed in a foul mood, the reason was likely a sickening realization that the two-week-long effort to destroy the Federal Army had failed. Here on the 20th, the Confederates were winning, but Bragg had needed Polk's wing of the Army to roll up the Yankee left, and in that, Polk had failed. Now, with Polk's wing having failed, and with Longstreet's men rolling up the enemy right, the Yankees were being driven north, which meant the beaten Federals were simply being herded back toward Chattanooga. And so, by mid-afternoon on the 20th, Bragg no doubt realized his plan to destroy the enemy army had failed, and he was going to be left with a hollow victory. If the Confederate Army commander was, in fact, as dejected that afternoon as Longstreet years later made him out to be, then Bragg underestimated the opportunity that remained for doing significant further damage to the portion of the Yankee army that still remained on the field. However, the flip side of that controversy is that, from that day to this, Longstreet and others who would parrot his criticism of Bragg Well, they grossly overestimated the opportunity that remained by thinking there was still a chance for a truly decisive victory. And in that, they're wrong. Because by early afternoon on the 20th, it was clear that the Federal Army would be seriously damaged, but not destroyed. Bragg certainly understood, as Longstreet obviously didn't, that this hollow Confederate victory at Chickamauga would not end the campaign as Bragg had intended. Instead, with a Federal retreat to Chattanooga, the campaign would have to go on. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. 
and you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Longstreet requested reinforcements from Polk's wing, Bragg supposedly told him disgustedly, quote, there is not a man in the right wing who has any fight in him. Or at least that's how Longstreet told it in his memoirs. Whether or not Bragg resorted to such hyperbole, he did refuse to pull troops off the right wing and feed them into Longstreet's attack. That would have been impractical in any case, and would have defeated the purpose of denying the Federals the Dry Valley Road by simply handing Thomas the Lafayette Road instead. However, Bragg did try to get the right wing rallied for another attack on the federal position at Kelly Field. He sent Polk written orders to renew the assault, quote, with his whole force and to persist until he should dislodge him from his position. Bragg followed up this order by sending staff officers and by going to that part of the field himself. And finally, late that afternoon, the concerted assault by Polk's entire wing of the army, which was supposed to have happened nearly 12 hours earlier, at last became a reality. As the Confederates stormed toward the breastworks around Kelly Field, their chances of success received an additional boost when the Yankees unaccountably began to withdraw. That's because Rosecrans may have made his escape in the route of the Federal right and been well on his way back to Chattanooga, but having been in the midst of the day's disaster, Old Rosie shared Longstreet's overestimate of its magnitude, and, intent on rallying whatever fragments of the army might be left, someplace closer to Chattanooga, he sent orders to George Thomas to withdraw to Rossville. Those orders reached Thomas around 4 p.m., Ironically, they directed him to take the worst possible course of action, because if it was difficult to hold a position in the face of relentless enemy attacks, it was even more difficult to withdraw in good order under such conditions. Thomas had hoped to hold on at Kelly Field and at Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge until nightfall, at which time it would have been easier to use the cover of darkness to disengage and withdraw. Now, however, after receiving Rosecrans' orders, he felt obliged to undertake this difficult withdrawal by daylight with the rebels still hammering his lines. To make matters worse, the entire Confederate right wing launched its massive attack just as the Federal troops at Kelly Field began to pull out of their positions. The result was disaster for the Federals, the troops would have been hard-pressed to stop Polk's Confederates while standing behind their breastworks, 
but they found it impossible to do so while falling back across the open ground of Kelly Field. All vestige of a unified defense collapsed. Some units fought on, making a fighting withdrawal. Others disintegrated in a mad stampede for safety. A substantial number of Federals were captured. Quickly, whether in good order or otherwise, the Federals who had held the Kelly Field position all day now moved back toward Snodgrass Hill. Thomas's plan called for the troops around Kelly Field to withdraw first, passing in rear of the position on Snodgrass Hill and Horseshoe Ridge, then up the Dry Valley Road to McFarland's Gap. As Polk's rebels overran Kelly Field, they broke into a chorus of rebel yells, a vast, discordant shriek of triumph rising through the gathering dusk from the throats of thousands of men who believed they had finally succeeded in crushing the Yankee army. In fact, though, by far the largest part of Thomas's force had made it intact, if not in good order, across Horseshoe Ridge and up the Dry Valley Road. The Federal troops on Snodgrass Hill were next, and then at last their comrades holding Horseshoe Ridge, finally vacating the positions for which so much blood had been spilled that afternoon. By that time, the darkness was nearly complete, especially in the woods that covered the ridge. The 89th and 21st Ohio and 22nd Michigan seemed to have been forgotten and left without support or assistance, and I don't suppose our whole force amounted to 500 men. In our regiment, our men were nearly half killed or wounded, and our ammunition nearly gone, in some companies entirely gone, and they were taking cartridges out of boxes of the killed and wounded. It was a fearful place. The musketry fire was terrible. Those who had been in several fights say that they never saw the musketry so heavy as it was here. We had now been in the fight for some three hours. Our men were becoming discouraged and disheartened, and night or reinforcements were more anxiously looked for and prayed for, the more so as it was pretty generally thought that we were surrounded. Lieutenant Edward Scott, 89th Ohio Infantry, Whittaker's Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. Filing in through the depths of the great ravine on our right and below us came a long line of soldiers carrying their muskets at a right shoulder shift, marching left in front and making no noise. The rising mist distorted them somewhat and blurred their outlines, but they seemed to be in dark uniforms and came from the direction in which Steedman's brigades had gone. As they slowly moved along and finally came to a front, facing us, they showed up a full brigade in strength. Our fellows regarded them with a curiosity that was almost listless, and calmly debated as to who they were, some maintaining that they were Confederates, who, acting with those who had just taken the crest of the hill, were about to assault us in the flank while others, arguing from the color of their uniforms and the direction from which they came, were as strongly impressed that they were Union troops. 
Wrapped in the fog, they looked like so many phantoms out on a ghostly brigade drill, and it gave one a creepy sensation to look at them, as it does to recall the incident. At last, Captain Alban made up his mind to know who they were. It was imperative that we should know, and yet it was plainly evident that the man who undertook to investigate would do so at the risk of his life. Without hesitation, the captain plunged down the hill and was soon lost to view. Presently, hearing nothing from the captain, a sergeant of my company approached and saluted. Be it known that as the most juvenile member of the regiment and the youngest commissioned officer in the Army of the Cumberland, I was generally addressed and referred to as the boy. Boy, said the sergeant, I think I will go and see who they are. I reluctantly gave my consent, and shouldering his rifle, the brave young fellow stepped blithely off, for all the world as if he were going squirrel hunting in his native Putman County woods. And from that day to this, I have never laid eyes on him. He was soon lost to view, and from neither him nor Captain Alban came back so much as a word or a cry. The suspense was growing unendurable. At last, one of our men called out sharply, What troops are you? The reply came back promptly, Jeff Davis's troops. We all heaved a sigh of relief, feeling for a brief moment that it was all right. The Union General, Jeff C. Davis, had been in the early part of the day on the right with his division, and our first impression was that this was his command approaching us, and our fellows lapsed again into quiet with no wise relaxed their eager watchfulness. Suddenly came the command from our own ranks, ringing out, ringing out sharp and clear, Fire! Now, who it was that gave the command, or why he should have done so, I have never found out, for there was not a cartridge among us all. But the order had a prompt and most decided effect, for instantly the approaching column lay down, seemed to melt and disappear, like the baseless fabric of a dream. For an instant it seemed as if the face of the earth had been suddenly cleared of them. Then, with a shrill yell, which went far to dispelling even the fog itself, and rent the very heavens, they rose and came for us. A crashing volley tore great holes in our huddled mass, and in the winking of a gnat's eyebrow they were upon us. It was quick work, at least one-third of our numbers were killed, wounded, or captured, and with them, worst of all, our colors. They, too, were gone. Lieutenant Wilson Vance, 21st Ohio Infantry, Sir Wells Brigade, Army of the Cumberland. The final parts of the Battle of Chickamauga, much like the first part, were confused affairs, characterized by uncertain but vicious encounters in darkened woods. Men blundered into enemy lines and were shot or captured, while others made good their escape, almost under the bayonets of their enemies. The advancing Confederates reaped a substantial harvest of prisoners. In the desperate confusion of the fighting withdrawal, some Federals didn't get the order to pull back. 
The 21st Ohio had fought one of the most heroic defensive battles of the war that day, but because its parent brigade and division had joined the route back to Chattanooga around midday, it had no proper chain of command linking it to higher headquarters, and so never got word of the withdrawal. It was finally overrun, along with the 22nd Michigan and 89th Ohio. A few of the men managed to creep off through the gloomy woods and hollows, but most went into captivity. The Battle of Chickamauga had begun and ended in confusion, and much of what came between was equally muddled. Terrain and circumstances had combined to ensure that officers from army commander down to brigadier often had only the vaguest ideas of what they or their enemies were up to. Now, as the fighting sputtered out in the darkening woods atop Horseshoe Ridge, the aftermath of the battle left only more uncertainty behind it. Because while September 20th had undoubtedly been a Confederate victory, what exactly that victory had achieved, or what came next, remained unclear. As battle-weary Union soldiers tramped through the darkness toward Chattanooga that night, and their Confederate counterparts finally rested on the gruesome battlefield, all that could be said with certainty was that a great battle had been fought. But Braxton Bragg had obviously failed to destroy the Yankee army, and so the campaign for control of East Tennessee and the gateway to Georgia was far from over. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is George Henry Thomas, As True as Steel, by Brian Steele Wills. It was for his leadership on the third day of the battle, when he was left as the senior general on the field, that George Thomas earned his nickname, Rock of Chickamauga. If you want to learn more about the life of this Virginian who remained loyal to the Union, There are a couple of good biographies out there, such as Master of War, The Life of General George H. Thomas by Benson Bobrick, and here, Brian Steele Will's book. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this episode, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Thomas S., Connor G., and Rick M. And thanks to Michael R. for his donation. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.